0: Please turn in your Bibles to Book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 18, the story of the rich young ruler. An interesting passage, and one I fear that is frequently by a lot of people misunderstood. So we'll have a look at what scripture says about this quite interesting young man. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now you might open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, that we might understand the wondrous things that you have in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him... Now, it's interesting that in in Mark, in, in Mark's account of this, it says that this young man came to Jesus running... It that, says that one came running. You think, well, you know, what's unusual about that? Well, you have to understand, in, in, especially in the Middle East, rich people didn't run there was no, because they felt that lost them their dignity. If you were rich, you had someone else who could run for you. So you didn't have to do it. Running was something done by messengers and servants. So the fact that this young man ran means that he didn't worry about being undignified. And that's, that's important because we, we learned that this young man came running. You ever wonder why did he run? Why, why did he run? Why did he come at this point and at this time? Well, the, the, you will find that Jesus was leaving this day. At this time, this story occurred as Jesus is coming out of the town. And this would be the last time that Christ would ever be in that place. This was the last chance this young man had to speak to him. And so he decided he would run. He had the right attitude. He did not worry about what other people thought. This was going to be his last chance to see Christ and he took it. We have to commend this young man. He had the the right attitude. He, He wanted to see Christ before it was too late. His last chance. How many people today are listening to the gospel for the last time? Well, they don't know it. They have no idea about it. But they are listening to the gospel for the last time. We should always remember this could be the last time that you or I will ever hear these things. There's a story that there was a council taking place in the pit of hell to decide how best to deceive men. And one demon stood and said, "'I'll tell them that there's no heaven.' Satan said, "'Nah." They look around the world and they know that there's got to be a heaven. And another said, "'I'll tell them that there's no hell.'" And his infernal majesty said, "'Nah.'" Their own sense of justice will tell them there has to be a hell. So the most evil and cunning stood and said, I'll tell them there's no hurry. Oh, says Satan, let them believe in heaven. Let them believe in hell. Just let them also believe there's no hurry. There's no no need to be anxious. There's no need to be worried. There's plenty of time. This young man knew better. He was wiser than that. And he came running to make sure that he got to hear the words of the master. So, he he had the right attitude. Secondly, he asked the right person. A certain ruler asked him, saying, good master. Now, if you're going to get good information, you need to ask an expert. You've thought about, about that? If I want information about electricity and, and, and wiring, I'll ask Kelly. I'll ask an expert. If I want information about engineering, I'll, I'll ask Greg. You know, you ask a person who knows about it. Right. So when you're asking about eternal life, you need to ask the expert. And brethren, there is no better expert in life, death, heaven and hell than the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows all about it. He's the expert. He is the one who's been there and back. So if you want to know... The truth about heaven, hell, life and death and eternal life. Ask the expert. Find out what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about these things. So he had the right attitude. So he asked the right person. He had the right aim. He said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted eternal life. He had his eye fixed on things past this world. We know he was rich, but clearly he understood that those riches were temporary. We know that he was young, but he had an eye to a time when he would not be young. He was a person who had realised he had a need, and the need was eternal life. So he asked Christ, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he had the right attitude. He asked the right person. He had the right aim. But he asked the wrong question. He asked the wrong question. For he asked, good master, what shall I do to inherit? eternal life. He viewed eternal life as something that he could get for himself. Something perhaps he could buy like he'd bought so many other things. We know he was rich. But Jesus pulls him up very sharply. He doesn't even address initially the last part of the question. He goes back to the first part. For this young man had come to him and said, good master. Well, what's, what's wrong with that? That expression, good master, could be translated good teacher. Same words used. You might use that of a university professor. You might use it for one of the leading scholars of the day it would be quite likely that someone as like the famous Gamaliel would have been, had that expression used of him. Good master, great teacher, wise one. What should I do? What should I know? What should I learn? But Jesus says, why do you call me good? Isn't that a strange question? Why would someone call Jesus good? Didn't he heal the sick? That's a good thing. Didn't he feed the hungry? That's a good thing. Didn't he raise the dead? That's a good thing. So why would would you not call him good? Because it comes down to a really important thing. And Jesus makes this point here. He says, why do you call me good? There is none good, only one. That's God. So Jesus is saying to him, I have claimed to be the son of God. I have claimed to be the Messiah. I have claimed to be he who should ransom Israel. And you want to just downgrade me to good. No, says Jesus. I'm either God or I'm not good. I'm either the Messiah or I'm a fake and a fraud and a charlatan. I'm either the living son of God or I'm the most evil, vile creature that ever existed. Because he allows you no choice. This idea that people have that we can take the immortal son of God and they can then say to him, oh, you're just a great teacher. You're just a really good example. You're not the son of the living God. You're just a good master. Jesus says, I won't let you do that. I am either come from God or I've come from hell. I have claimed to be the only way to heaven. I'm either telling the truth or I'm putting all your souls in jeopardy. I'm either God or I'm not good. So while the young man is having a think about this, which is a fairly hefty thing to have to digest straight off. Jesus then says to him, You know the commandments, thou knowest the commandments. And he lists five. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. How many commandments are there? Most people say 10, you know? You've 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 all watched the you know the Charlton Heston movie? Ten, right? Ten, on the on the big blocks of stone, ten. According to the rabbis, and you know who am I to argue with such learned men? The Torah, the law, contains two hundred and fourteen do's, or one for every bone in the human body. It contains three hundred and sixty five don'ts. All one for every day of the year. That rounds out to some 660 odd commandments. Now, he says, You know the commandments. And he lists five. He lists five out of 660. Why those five? What's so significant about those five? There are many things that are significant about those five. One is that they're foundational. That is to say, a lot of the other commandments flow from them. So, for instance, um, thou shalt not steal. Then the injunction that you don't move the landmarks that declare whose land is whose, flows from the concept that you don't steal someone's land. So many of these things are, are foundational in that other commandments flow from them. They are all related to people. You notice that? They're all related to people. Because the first commandments of the 10 relate to God. And they relate to things that you can't see because they relate to worshipping God. But these are all visible things. These are all obvious things. You can tell if someone has stolen. You can tell if someone has murdered. So that's an important thing about them. There's something else about these five. Because this young man says, All these have I kept. All these have I kept. Well, let's never mind the other 665 or 655. He says, All these five I have kept. He says, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. He was rich. You know there's a saying that behind every rich man you can find at least one crime. Did he says, no, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't lied. Yeah, okay. I've always honoured mum and dad. He says, I've kept all these. Hmm. Do you think he had? Perhaps, especially those of you who were here last week, turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see where I'm going here. Remember what Pastor preached on last week, the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, You remember how he spoke from verse 22 to 26? Showing that the commandment, thou shalt not kill, encompasses far more than just going up and stabbing someone. No, it encompasses our heart attitude. Now I'll put it to you that if you sit here for the next three or four or five times that pastor preaches, when he goes through those other things in Matthew chapter 5, every time he does, stick your thumb back into Luke 18 and have a look at the, the commandments that are listed here. And oh yeah, you're going to find a real similarity in the list. A real similarity in the list. Because this young man was saying, All these have I kept from my youth. All these have I done. Where in truth, if you look at what was being taught in Matthew and what we learnt last week, you'll realise that what he should have said was, All these have I broken from my youth up. In all these, I have failed. In all these, I have been unable to do what the law commands. And yet, in his ignorance, he says, oh, I've kept them all. I'm good enough. God will grade on the curve and and I'll make it. I'll, I'll get over the line. You know, we do, uh, occasionally we, we have to do fitness tests. And one of the rules that I learned really early was, you don't have to win. You don't have to win. Just don't come last. <laughs> but unfortunately, people think that God looks at sin the same way. Oh, yeah, you know, there's the the saints and the apostles out the front. We don't have to get that high, that good. We'll just get in the middle. We'll just make sure we don't come last. We'll leave that to to Idi Amin and Adolf Hitler and and those uh, those guys back there. We'll just make sure we don't fall into that category. We'll just stick in the middle. God does not grade on a curve. For those of you who do teaching will understand what I'm getting at there. God does not say, well, that's the average sinner, and that's good, and that's bad. No, it doesn't work like that. You break one commandment, and that's it. What you say, one of the five, no. Not one of the five, Oh, one one of the ten, no, not one of the 10. One of the 665. Well, how many times do you have to break it? One. Once. You break one commandment once, it makes you a sinner. That's it. Is it any wonder that this young man should have been saying, all these have I failed to keep from my youth up? But in his naivety and enthusiasm, he saw himself as good. He saw himself as adequate. He saw himself as sufficient in God's sight. So Jesus says, all right, I'll try and explain it to you in a way you can understand. I'll try and demonstrate what the problem is. And he said to him, and now when Jesus heard these things, verse 22, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. He said, all right, all I want you to do is just one thing. We'll forget all the other 664 commandments. Let's see if you can just keep one. And he said unto him, Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me And when he heard this he was very sorrowful for he was very rich What was his problem His problem wasn't that he was rich His problem was there was yet one more commandment that hadn't been mentioned. See, you remember there's the five at the start? Or the ones at the start about God? You know, no no idols, no graven images, no other God. Keep the Sabbath day, yeah, okay, those ones, the God ones. Then there's the ones about other people. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't kill, don't steal. They're about people. But you know what the real kicker is? The real toughie is? It's the last one. Thou shalt not covet. That's the hard one. You shall not desire something that isn't rightfully yours. Now, remember, I may have spoken on this before. Coveting is not greed. Greed is different alright coveting is not ambition there's nothing wrong with ambition if and, and I've, I've, I illustrate it and I still think this is the best illustration you go out there and you see the, the, the beautiful red sports car alright and the guy in there you know you, you see him he's, he's in the red sports car and he's got his, his arm around the blonde okay and he's got the gold chain around his neck and he's, you know, fifty-five in the middle of a midlife crisis, and he's bought the red sports car. And you look at that sports car, and you say, i love one of those." Never mind the gold chain or the blonde. Look at the sports car. You say, "I'd love one of those." If you say to yourself. I'm going to go and I'm going to work and I'm going to save and I'm going to buy myself one of those. That is ambition and there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with that. That's ambition. That's a goal. Fine. However, if you say I am go- I want his sports car. That's coveting. I want his because what's the child of coveting? child of coveting is theft. I want it, and I'll go and take it. You see, coveting is wanting something that belongs to someone else. Its cousin is greed, and its child is theft. But to covet is a sin. You know, this rich young man isn't the only person with this problem in the New Testament. Have a look over in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. This is interesting because it lets you in a little window into the life of, of a very famous person. The Apostle Paul, we're told, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Touching the law, blameless. If there was something to do, he did it. If there was something not to do, he didn't do it. He said that there was nobody who could stand up and say, this is where you've broken and and defied the tradition of the elders. But what does he say? about understanding the the truth of the law. For in in verse 7 of Romans 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. And look at what he says here. Which commandment was it? Which part of the law was it that tripped up the apostle Paul? For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Isn't that interesting? Do you want to know what part of the law convinced Paul and convicted Paul that he was a sinner? Thou shalt not covet. He said, because that, he realised, wasn't an external It wasn't a do or a don't. It was a matter of the heart. And he realised that he was a sinner. When he truly understood, thou shalt not covet. And this is what our Lord is trying to do with this young man. He's trying to show him not that his riches are evil, not that his wealth is wrong, But that his desire makes him a sinner. Brethren, we are not sinners because we sin. No. We sin because we are sinners. It is our hearts which lead us into sin. this young man had said what must i do to get eternal life jesus says said to him to get yourself into heaven means you have to do something that you are totally unable to do you must be as perfect as your father in heaven in And you can't do this. You can't be good enough. What must I do? Nothing. Because there's nothing I can do. We so often, you know, like the nursery rhyme, like Georgie Porgy. Yeah, you know, stick in a thumb, pull out a plum, and say, "Oh, what a good boy am I!" But our hearts should be convicting and convincing us that we are sinners. Jesus is trying to show him. It is not a matter of what you do that gets you into heaven, and in fact. Next time, we'll be understanding that Jesus is revealing to his disciples, it's what Jesus does that gets you into heaven. This young man left very sorrowful because he was very rich. When Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. You mean it's tough for rich people. Don't wonder why it's tough for rich people. It's tough for rich people because they trust riches. That's why it's tough for rich people. They say, like the, the man of the parable, I have much goods laid up for many years. They say to their soul, Eat, drink, be merry. I have everything I need. And they do not realize their absolute need and they trust in their riches. And it makes it very difficult for them to be saved. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't say it's impossible. We'll come to that in a moment. But people, rich people trust in riches. Other people trust in their church membership. Some people trust in the fact that they were baptised as a little baby. Other people trust in their good works. They trust in something that will get them into heaven and they're just like this rich young man saying, what must I do? And Jesus says you can't do anything. Because you don't have the capacity to do it. Because you're a sinner. It's a question of what must Jesus do. To get you into heaven. And he must die. For your sin. That's what must be done. And then. You must believe that. And trust him. That is what gets you into heaven. Not who you are or what you have or what you've done or what you've achieved. Verse 25, For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And please, do not give me stories about camels and burdens and little gates no, I fully believe that Jesus meant a real live camel and a real live needle. All right, he used—you know—he he, he uses the expression of a camel a few times in his parables, he, in his um, proverbs, and his expressions that he he uses. He says that the. The the that the Pharisees are blind guides who will strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Did he mean a theoretical camel? No, he meant a real gnat and a real camel. He, he this this is an expression simply to make it understood. This is not naturally possible, and you can see that from the reaction of the disciples because the disciples go well then, that's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. You've understood it completely what he was trying to get at, that you can't squeeze camels through needles' eyes and you can't push rich men through into heaven trusting in their riches. Doesn't work that way. Then he says... You see, the things that are impossible with men, like pushing camels through needles, are possible with God. It's really interesting, actually, that, that expression there. You know, it, it, it comes down to about four words in Greek. It's really short that things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It's almost as if he's... Boiled it down to the lowest a number of words you can. And he says, men, impossible. God, anything possible. That's, what, that, that's how, how brief and how terse it is. Men can't do anything. God can do anything. And that's what he's getting at here. Now, it's interesting. It says how hard it is. He doesn't say it's impossible. He says with God it is possible. It's interesting if you look over in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, I going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Don't you know, brethren, that not many rich, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Now the interesting thing about that is. That there are some rich and some mighty and some noble who are. Not many, but a few. For with God, anybody can get into heaven. Anybody who will trust Christ will get into heaven. But the standard applies the other way. That nobody who doesn't trust Christ will get into heaven. Because with men, it's impossible. There is nobody so evil they can't get in if they will repent and trust Christ. And there's nobody so good that they can get in on their own. Because with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter then piped up and said, well, what about those who've, Who've really, you know, sacrificed for you, Lord. What about those like us who've, who've left everything? Remember, Peter walked away from a very successful business. Zebedee and sons, fishmongers to the gentry, was quite a respectable business. Quite a size. And he walked away from all of it. Walked away from a, a good life, respectable life, to follow this this young preacher from Nazareth, and to end up being crucified himself. Jesus said, God doesn't forget. You you leave all and follow me and I'll make it worth your while. I'll make it worth your while not only in this world, but in the world to come. Have you ever seen those books? Uh, there's a couple of them around of famous last words. You know? you seen those? There's some great ones. There's famous last words like the general who stood up and said don't worry men, they couldn't hit an elephant from as the enemy shot him. Famous last words. If you can find them. You find they're they're quite interesting and amusing. I have yet to find one famous last words from a Christian saying, it wasn't worth it. No one. I can find heaps of famous last words from the the famous atheists and, and deniers who say things like, It's all been a waste. What folly. Another classic, I regret everything. But not one of those sorts of words comes from a Christian. Not one. Christians die rejoicing. Because in this world, never mind in the world to come, in this world, God repays them for what they've done. So, what do we see here? What we see here is this. Number one, there is none good but God. Never forget it. It's not me. Certainly not me. And it's not you. He gives us a list understand it and our own hearts condemn us that we cannot measure up he calls us to follow and instead of following we falter and we fumble and we fail and we fall and then he says trust God to do the impossible when we realise that he alone is good That he alone holds the key to eternal life. That it's not what we do, but how we trust that gets us into heaven. When we understand these things and we allow our own heart to condemn us, then we are in a fit state to turn to Christ and receive from him eternal life. Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do you have to do? Stop doing and start trusting. That is the message. Stop striving and begin seeking. Stop working and begin to reach out to the one who's reaching out to you. Trust God to do the impossible. God makes the impossible a matter of heavenly routine. He does wondrous impossible things. Because he saves sinful people. With man, that is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And God can have your soul guaranteed an eternity in heaven with him. If you will stop asking what must I do and start trusting him. Rich young ruler came running because there was no chance. This is his last chance. This may well be your last chance. Will you come running today to the one, the only one who can save your soul? Thank you.